Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am your host, Aram Arslanian, and you are joining us for One Step Beyond. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is addiction in the workplace. For those of you who don't know, my background is as a therapist, and I worked as an addiction counselor for 10 years in Vancouver's Lower Mainland. And in that time, I did a lot of street-based work with people living with addiction and mental health concerns. So not only does this matter to me because I've worked with that population, uh, but I also identify as someone who lives with addiction. Uh, I've been sober now from uh, alcohol and drugs for 24 years, I believe. And my work around addiction has not just been for other people, but it's also been around myself and how I manage my struggles with addiction in the workplace. So I've become interested in how we as professionals and organizations can put our best foot forward in supporting those who live with addiction. Doing more than just saying the right things, but showing up as true supports, helping people walk through these difficulties and keeping them in the workplace so they've got an opportunity to thrive rather than just survive. So joining me today is Sandy Thompson. Uh, Sandy is an incredible leader, and it's a real privilege to have him here today. So Sandy, welcome. Great to be here, Ram. What a uh, what a privilege. All right. So this is going to be a, a real interesting one because uh, for the audience, Sandy and I have a long history together. We've known each other professionally and personally for many years. Uh, Sandy plays a unique role in the history of Cadence. He was our actual first customer of all time. So he's the first client that we ever had. And uh, him and I share a lot of um, points of, of interest around this topic. So of course, we thought this is the perfect person to have on for this one. So Sandy, tell us about yourself and how you relate to this topic. Yeah, absolutely, Ram. Well, um, a little bit about my uh, background. I came from uh, a challenging uh, childhood. Um, but you know, the majority of us have challenging childhoods. And uh, but I had a lot of love in my family. My grandfather raised me. Very proud of that. Um, got a college education from Arkansas, so I was behind the eight ball uh, before I ever, uh, you know, got started in the uh, the working world. Just just joking. Uh, shout out to all my Arkansas uh, brethren out there. But um, got in the corporate world with uh, Xerox Corporation. Uh, been in sales, sales leadership, and now senior sales leadership for a number of years. Uh, just been blessed. Worked with a lot of great people and have a lot of great memories. And uh, uh, just very thankful for that on the personal side got a wonderful uh, 25-year-old son, and uh, Trevor, shout out to you, Trevor, and uh, second college graduate uh, from our family. He's from uh, graduated from the University of Oklahoma, and uh, then I uh, have a number of uh, folks very close to my sister, my mom, and a number of others. Got a lot of great friends. So uh, anyway, that, that top line's that. Um, I am been in recovery for 12 years. Uh, in fact, celebrated 12 years back on October the 9th of uh, this year. Couldn't be more proud. Um, and uh, my active addiction started when I had my first drink. I was 16. And um, I thought I had hit the jackpot. It's like, Eureka, <laughs> everything has been equalized, right? Needless to say, um, that wasn't the case. It was Eureka, watch out because hell's about to break loose. And uh, 23 years in active alcoholism, 
um, and got sober when I was 40. I'm 52, been sober 12 years, and uh, couldn't be more thankful and grateful uh, to be able to speak to this topic. And I've uh, worked with a lot of great people, and you're at the top of the list, Ram. Thank you. All right, so let's get into it. Where does the story start for you around addiction as it relates to the workplace? Because you mentioned, you know, you were quite young when you had your first drink. But where does the story start about where it starts crossing over into the workplace? Yeah, you know, Rem, looking back, it was straight out of college when I was with Xerox Corporation. Um, moved from um, Arkansas to Oklahoma. And um, I could see that at company functions and things that I was um, out of control, right? Early 20s and... Um, was uh, volatile and, you know, I would want to go to these company events. And uh, honestly, I was more focused on uh, getting loaded than I was, you know, actually learning or uh, developing uh, my skill sets. And then, of course, I was attracted to a group uh, that was just like me. But I uh, I could see it then. And then uh, as uh, I got into my 30s, um, I could uh, sense that I was really har- harming relationships in the workplace um, as I got in leadership roles. And, um, you know, even though my performance was great, my behavior uh, at times was suspect, and it really, uh, really compromised me uh, in the eyes of leadership, which in turn then made me, uh, I guess you'd say, defiant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, um, I, I, I harmed my career uh, in certain ways. Um, but I was so into my addiction, I couldn't see it, right? I didn't know I was an addict. Yeah. And um, then, um, you know, I finally... Uh, Got to a point in October of um, 2007 that I'd had enough and uh, worked with a really uh, good lady that was a counselor in Tulsa, and she called me out on it. And um, anyway, uh, since then, I'm not going to say it's been easy, but um, it's been a hell of a lot more uh, enjoyable professionally. And I can truly say that my professional impact has uh, just skyrocketed since I got into recovery and admitted that I had issues. Okay. Uh, And thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I I just want to acknowledge... For anyone who's listening, this is a, a real vulnerable place for Sandy to be to be sharing this stuff. And it's coming from a desire to help other people, which is, I mean, that's at the center of our recovery. So I want to peel it all the way back to when you're in your first role and you start having these behaviors and you're saying, you know, you're going to these functions and you're acting out. What does acting out look like? Like, what does it look like from y- your experience to be in that space as a, as a person who is early in their addiction? Well, it seemed like it was a lot of fun, right? I thought it was normal, and I thought everybody drank like I did. And You know, it was uh, staying up till 3 or 4 in the morning and then uh, going to the, you know, the breakfast the next day at 7 and starting the meeting at 8 and maybe be wearing the stuff that you had on the night before and loaded and red-eyed and uh, disinterested um, and then agitated, right? And then uh, I couldn't wait until, uh, you know, happy hour that night, and, you know, you, you just did it again. And uh, at the same time, though, let me tell you the other side of it is uh, – I was charismatic and, um, you know, could be inspirational. And so it was kind of a double-edged sword, I guess you would say, uh, because a lot of people like to uh, party with me. Um, The problem is, is they could stop. I couldn't stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something I found real interesting. So first you brought up two things that I I have found in my work uh, with addictions, but I've also found from my own experience are super common with people living in addiction, especially people in the work world. One is that they're charismatic and they're good at showing up, essentially. So they can create a party around them, but they can also kind of talk their way into and out of things. But the other side is people living with addiction that remain in the workforce typically have very high performance or can have very high performance. So these two things can actually lead your behaviors to continue and continue because A, you're charismatic enough to like talk your way out of a whole bunch of situations. But B, 
your performance stays high. So tell me, how did you keep your performance up? Yeah, yeah great, great point, Ram. And I think that a lot of the addicts that I've been around in the workplace that are in recovery, there is um, the ability to connect with people because we're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well, right? And so to frame it up, um, you know, it'd be like somebody that had, I don't know, a broken arm or a broken leg or some sort of serious illness. That's that's the um, challenge that we face as addicts on the mental health side, right? And that's taboo to say that, right? Geez, you don't want to say that you're an addict or you got mental health challenges or anything like that in the workplace, which, by the way, is nonsense. And I hope that we can get into that later. But the um, we connect very well with people to your original question. And um, we have, you know, fantastic skill sets in certain ways. We're not damaged goods because we're addicts. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems like we communicate well, build trust very well, mm-hmm. are very loyal people. And the other thing about addicts, and I'll speak for myself, is that, and you don't realize this until you get in recovery, is that you're really running from yourself. You don't like the way you feel, mm-hmm. so you want to change the way you feel. Mm-hmm. Well, you can channel that in positive ways. And one of the ways that I channeled that, looking back on it, was I was able to um, perform at very high levels as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just want more and more and more because you love that appreciation. Um, It hides insecurities. Really, at the end of the day, you're running from yourself. Um, The problem is, is you just continue to want more and more and more, Mm -hmm. and you continue to be empty, empty, empty. And so you continue, in my case, to uh, drink and gamble. Okay. So if we're thinking about all those behaviors... People around you start noticing, but you're able to outperform their concerns. So they're mm-hmm. they're worried, but your performance is high. You're charismatic. You can talk to you can talk to people, but the whole time you've got this hole inside of you, and that hole can't be filled with all the alcohol. It can't be filled with all the possessions. It can't be filled with all the gambling. So you're constantly trying to fill that thing. So Sandy, at what point in your story did your addiction become pitched enough that your high performance couldn't cover up for it anymore? Yeah, great question, Ram. And there's really two answers to that for me is I really started compromising relationships and um, I would have multiple people pull me over that really cared about me and I cared about them. Mm-hmm. Um, being a good addict, right? What's the number one sign of addiction is saying that you don't have a problem. Right. And so uh, I was like, hey, you know, get out of my business, get on your side of the street, yeah. when it, even though it didn't feel right. And these were, you know, good people. And so it compromised me with um, senior leadership, mm-hmm. stunted career growth. And I knew that I was um, losing respect, professional respect in certain areas. And that made me that much more defiant and the behaviors that much more aberrant. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. And so I didn't have uh, very good self-awareness at all. Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, it really compromised me. And I was really having a hard time looking folks in the eyes that uh, reported to me mm-hmm. uh, because I had low self-esteem and um, didn't feel good about myself. And so. Um, that's tough to, to lead an organization or a team or an individual when you're really, uh, you know, you don't have that self-confidence and, uh, you know, you're going down the wrong path because then the natural behavior is, is to uh, isolate, avoid, and just run from the issues. But those are, those are really two things that stood out for me around. Okay. So like any good addict, mm. you're going to have two scripts going on. One of them is, I don't have a problem. Everyone else has a problem. But the other one is that voice is saying like, Hey, do you have a problem? Are you okay? So tell me about those two competing voices that you had going on as an addict. At what point does the voice that says, hey, maybe you actually do have a problem, when does that one start being loud enough that you start paying attention to it in your story? Yeah, so, you know, for me, it really was a personal thing. It wasn't so much, um, I mean, professionally, I was had really challenged myself. 
but I had created barriers to where, again, I said this earlier, I didn't have the self-awareness. So the more that I knew I was wrong, the more I continued in my addictive behaviors. Um, the reality for me, it showed itself personally before it showed itself uh, professionally, is I had gotten real selfish um, and uh, had compromised personal relationships. It kind of makes me sick thinking about it now, but um, and I was very selfish. I've got a wonderful son um, that's 25 now. I couldn't be more proud of him. And uh, I could see that I was really compromising my relationship with my son because I was very selfish. You know, I wanted to get loaded Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and, you know, then drink on the other days too. And then, you know, of course, I would go out of town and party, et cetera. So the, the, where it really crossed over into the workplace was when I was really broken and I got to the point inside of myself. And I'll never forget, I was on a Southwest flight flying with a, a team member. Obviously, I can't uh, speak uh, their name. We were going to Las Vegas for a, we had, the team had won a, an event. And we were going out there, of course, we had $15,000. We were going to get loaded, right? And um, had a bunch of croonies with me and uh, great people. But uh, I couldn't look him in the eyes. And uh, I'd been going to counseling that was uh, couples counseling. And um, the last thing I wanted to hear was that I was the problem and it was my alcoholism. And so um, anyway, hopefully that answered that question. All right. So when we're talking about change, one of the things that people struggle with a lot is people avoid change because change is painful. So at what point did the pain of change become less than the pain of staying the same? So it became actually less painful to change than it did staying the same, meaning staying the same was more painful. Yeah, great, great point. You know, and again, um, it was on an October afternoon, and I just told you about the Southwest flight to, to Las Vegas, but then it really hit me on an October afternoon um, in 2007, um, and I just had a point of clarity around. I looked myself in the mirror, and uh, the counselor I'd been going to called me out, and I was furious, absolutely furious. And uh, it struck a chord, and uh, I just, for one glimpse, right, I was 40 years old, for just one that one moment I had clarity that I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father was an alcoholic, and I was never going to be like my father, right? And I love my dad, and um, he committed suicide um, as a result of um alcoholism, but I was never going to be like that. And I always thought it was a self-will issue, et cetera, which is absolute nonsense. So it hit me that October afternoon. I just had a glimpse of um, really being honest with myself. And um, anyway, I'll never forget that day, October the 9th, 2007. Okay. So you decided to get sober. What are the steps you took? Oh, geez. Uh, well, I, I got in this... Uh, uh, I remember telling my counselor that I didn't need any help and said a lot of bad words that I won't say here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and thank God that she was so uh, patient and graceful about it. Uh, just thank the world over. I'm not going to mention her name for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But um, um, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous mm -hmm. and uh, got very involved and um, didn't understand it. But I remember the first meeting I went to was October the 10th and, uh, or excuse me, October the 11th, two days after I had this epiphany, right, that I got honest with myself. And um, I just remember um, a gentleman in the group said, hey, Sandy, you know, just come back tomorrow and don't drink between now and then. Those two things I did and I've done for 12 years and it's absolutely uh, changed my life. Mm -hmm. Right on. Excellent. How did your workplace help you? So when you finally hit that place and you're like, you know what, I need to change. Did your work rally around you? Did you tell them? Did you not tell them? Like, how'd that work? You know, it was interesting. At first, people were, um, they were like, what do you mean? You're not an alcoholic. What do you mean? You're, 
quit drinking. Here, have a beer. Come on, just have a few. And um, so, again, their intentions were good. Totally appreciate it. Loved the guys, and I'm just thinking out loud, um, you know, 12 years ago when um, I did get sober. But they were shocked and um, um, didn't really know what to think, right? And I had a strong personality, and so, you know, who knows what was being said behind the scenes. But these were folks that cared about me. The other side of that was um, very supportive in the workplace, Saram. And what I mean by being supportive is folks respected my decision. It wasn't folks putting their arm around me or I didn't get a call from HR and, you know, they didn't throw a party because Sandy's getting sober. But they were very supportive and respected my decision. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that I recognized um, six months, nine months, 12 months into sobriety, and remember, I didn't have my go-to booze, Mm -hmm. right? is that um, I'd really harmed relationships, mm-hmm. really harmed relationships, and in fact had uh, left the organization about a year after uh, I was into sobriety, and I even said it earlier, about three months into sobriety, I thought I was going to get uh, fired because just because you're not drinking doesn't mean that you don't have addictive tendencies, especially in early uh, sobriety, because I can uh, assure you that I was as volatile and as vocal as I could be and embarrassingly defiant at times. Right, right, right. All right, let's get into it, man. Let's talk about addiction then. Let's do it. We've talked about your story. I want to talk about addiction in general. So in your travels in the work world, my travels in the work world, we've seen a lot of people suffering, a lot of addiction, uh, some of it people recognizing, hey, I struggle with this. Some of it we can, because we're both addicts, we can look at it and be like, "Eh, there's probably some stuff at play there. So high performance culture, they got a lot of people who are driven people. From your perspective, why do you think that alcoholism and drug addiction and, and any form of addiction, why do you feel that's so present in the workplace? Because it's statistically quite present in uh, high-performance cultures. Yeah. You know, I think it's – we live in such a high, high-paced culture. There's such um, – and we always talk about the workplace. There's so many expectations. We're asked to do more with less. I'm probably showing my age here. I'm sure that, you know, maybe my grandpa was saying this 20, 30 years ago. But with technology, which is a great thing, we're always on, right? Yeah. And um, the stress and the um, the expectations are greater than ever. And then in our personal lives, you know, there, there's just so much going on, too. So y- you bring that together. Maybe you've got addictive tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, your go-to becomes whatever your go-to is. I don't know if it's drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it can then lead to, hey, I'm going to do this, whatever this is, yeah. every once in a while. And then all of a sudden, it kind of, you do it on a binge, right? And then next thing you know, you're doing it uh, like I was uh, with alcohol uh, almost nightly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's um, a lot of pressure in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Is it more so than in the past? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of personal stress and responsibilities out there um, that also you bring those two together and boom, there you go. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't want to say this is what all addicts are, are about. But one of the things that we mentioned earlier and that I have noticed is that many addicts, not all addicts, but many addicts, um, high in charisma, incredibly creative and very like strong at getting stuff done. What do you think the connection is there with uh, with people being in high performance cultures or like senior level leaders and addiction? What do you think that like magic combination is that gets people a high percentage of people living with addiction to start playing at these senior levels? Yeah, you know, and Ram, I, I thought a lot about this before we got together today. And um, when you have somebody that's got a, addictive tendencies, again, they can be channeled in positive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, it was a way for me to create identity, mm-hmm. to get beyond insecurities. I didn't like the way I felt. So mm-hmm. sales performance in this case, 
uh, change that because you get a lot of recognition, a lot of praise, the financial results that come with it, and then you just want more, 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 right? So um, I think that um, as I really think about this, it's a way to run from yourself, Mm -hmm. right? And so, again, you channel it, and it's positive because you're putting up great numbers, et cetera, um, but then it becomes a a double-edged sword, and then um, you expect more of yourself, and then the alcohol consumption becomes greater, and then you expect more of yourself, and then it becomes just a downward spiral. Yeah, so we've got people who are in pain, and whatever it is, they're trying to escape from themselves. Like Whatever the pain is, they're drawn to something that allows them to perform, and that performance, like putting up the numbers or being successful, it's a positive outlet, but the further they do it, it feels good. You can't fill up that hole, that empty hole in you. So you want more and more to fill up that hole. So you do more and more. And then we're using alcohol, drugs, sex, or whatever it is to medicate those feelings so that you can keep performing and keep driving and keep going. And it becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy, this cycle you can't get out of. Exactly. And then you think, well, if I get to this job or if I get to this income amount or if I get to this level of performance, mm-hmm. then, you know, that's going to be great. You know, I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to fill that hole. And you really don't realize you have a hole at the time, right? Uh-huh. But you get there and it's like, whoa, this is it. And you want the next thing. Yeah. And then you think, if I get there, and so all you're doing is creating more stress. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of um, things going on in your mind mentally and then physically within your body. Yeah, you're not, I think your biochemistry changes, yeah. you know, a lot better than I would. And um, it begins, I mean, it, it continues to be a downward spiral. Now, let me also say this, Aram, is beyond performance, when you're leading a group of people, what you'll tend to do, or I'll speak for myself as an addict, is um, you carry burdens that aren't yours. Yeah. Well, when you start carrying a lot of burdens that aren't yours and you're a mess, guess what? You got disaster. And this is where disaster happens in my case. It wasn't with the people I was leading. I was doing everything I could to pour myself into them, right? Again, alcoholics aren't bad people trying to get good. They're sick people trying to get well. But at my expense, I was carrying other people's burdens. Right. Well, guess what that created for me inside? And maybe you couldn't see it on the outside because, you know, you had the charisma and the strong personality, likability and all that stuff. But I continued to drink more and more and more as I took on more and more and more that wasn't mine to take on to begin with. Yeah. So did people try and help you? Did anyone step in and say, I want to help this guy? No. And let me tell you why I think that is. Hmm. That's not a shot at anybody. I'm not a victim of anything. Right. I don't think that. Um, when I got sober, folks really knew how to approach it. Mm-hmm. And then when you've seen a real strong personality mm-hmm. that's well-liked, and I'm sure there's some folks out there that are going to hear this that don't like me. So for the <laughs> – How dare they? Yeah, for the, for the 10% that do, right? That's who I'm speaking to here is, you know, they don't know how to approach it, even um, with good um, intentions. And then they don't know how to isolate it. And that's a real great area – or a real gray area, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we – um, there's so many HR laws and we live in a litigious environment, et cetera. Um, but I don't think that they knew how to yeah. approach me. Should people? Absolutely. Okay, so I want to unpack this. You say people should, and this is a a real interesting one for me because I come from two perspectives. So uh, being a a guy who has worked with addiction for a long time, and I also work with addiction in the workplace sometimes. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of things. But also being a guy that lives with addiction, um, I know what it's like to have that hole inside. Mm. And I know part of my career success has been because I'm an addict and I like that feeling, you know, like that success and driving and working hard and like making things impossible things happen. And I like all of that stuff. 
But I also know that cavernous space of like deep fear and like running away from who you are and constantly needing to prove to yourself that you deserve to be alive and all of these things. So I know those things as well. And I can think of the times in my life where people have tried to step in and say like, hey, Ram, maybe you're working too hard. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Maybe you're going uh, further than you need to go. And always having reasons, always having an excuse, always having a way of talking my way out of it. And always on the other end, like deeply knowing I was totally right what I was saying, but also a small part of me thinking like, I'm getting one over on this person. I'm clever enough to get there. So if we're saying like, hey, can businesses or people within businesses say this if they see someone struggling? Can they really? Should they really? I think so. And that's coming from an addict, right? Right. Is And I think that, and this is a very fine line, and this is probably why folks um, don't feel comfortable with it. If your heart's right and your intention's good, um, I think it's okay in a responsible, respectful manner to um, ask somebody if they need some help. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by needing help is, and I think it's all in how you phrase it, you know, hey, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Right? And you give some examples without being uh, judgmental or threatening. Um, and this could be peer-to-peer. This could be um, your manager or somebody actually that reports to you. It doesn't matter. Throw all that out, right? Mm-hmm. You've got somebody sick that you're trying to help. And I think it's okay if you reach out to them in a compassionate, empathetic, and a gentle way. Your heart has to be right. You can't have a hidden agenda that you're trying to one-up somebody or you're trying to create gossip or something like that. And you know, maybe that's the 10 percent, but the 90 percent with the right heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely, absolutely think that um, that's something that folks should have the, the courage enough and the conviction enough to um, call out to somebody. Yes. OK. OK. I like that. Um, you know, it's an interesting space because, you know, neither of us are HR professionals. Uh, I am a I'm a big believer in doing something that you'd said earlier was once frowned upon, but it seems so less and less right now is talking about your addiction or your mental health concerns in the workplace. Something that's always stood out to me about you as a leader is totally fearless about this. Like you'll identify right off the bat, like I live with addiction. First time we ever met and you didn't, just to be clear, Sandy didn't kick in the door and be like, I'm an addict. (laughs) You know, there was like a, there was a clear point because I'd said I was an addiction therapist and then we ended up talking about it. But you've never been shy to talk about that. Tell me about why and what's the point of you talking about it with people? Well, this is where defiance can be good, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, in all sincerity, you know, when I work with a group of people and I feel like I'm just one of who I represent, who cares about what your title is or isn't, right? Uh, We all have the same desires, emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, we want esteem. We want to be cared about. We want to be loved. We want to be appreciated, Mm -hmm. right? And that's personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. In the workplace, I think it's um, so important to show vulnerability. And I, in my role as um, a leader, mm-hmm. and again, just one of who I represent, I think it was very important. It was very important for me to uh, be very vulnerable mm-hmm. and uh, to let folks it's okay not to be okay. Because guess what? Whether you're an addict or whatever your challenge is, we've all got challenges. And at times, we're not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's okay in the workplace to not be okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I was trying to, when I've talked about it openly, there's really two things going on in my mind. How can I identify with people right where they are? And we the only way I knew how to do it was vulnerability, mm-hmm. okay? And then the, the second thing, too, is it drove accountability for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I couldn't be out having drinks where everybody would do it in moderation. Uh, folks would know why I wasn't at the midnight dance party or whatever. 
wanted to be, but just couldn't function, right? I had to keep my sobriety above everything else. But vulnerability is the key thing. Now, I can really go on a rant here, Ram, if you want me to take up the next two hours, because I think that um, there's a tremendous opportunity for corporate America um, and corporate America's small business, big business, whatever, for us to educate, absolutely educate proactively on addiction. And I look at it from two ways. I look at it for the addict that may be sitting in the audience, right? The 11% of corporate executives, I think, is the um, the stat that you spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. And also look at it from what if you're sitting in that audience and you're living with an addict, significant other, family member, whatever the case may be. I absolutely think it's a, uh, a tremendous opportunity for us mm-hmm. um, to um, approach uh, addiction um, where it's at. And I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity to champion the cause. And the output of that is um, the environment's going to become much more productive. Vulnerability is a great thing. It builds trust in my mind, yeah. right? Um, and I think the other thing, it builds trust, and you, you have uh, fantastic cultures because folks rally around people, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is is that the most important thing is it changes folks. Mm-hmm. What if you just are able to reach one person? Now, look, we're not trying to be, uh, you know, a re- religious organization or anything. But if you can just touch one person in a positive way, whether they're the addict or on the other side of addiction, through just proactively bringing programs in, and it's not hard, right? We've just turned our eye, our head the other way, not because people didn't want to do anything about it, but people are afraid of it when it comes to addiction, in my opinion. It's taboo to talk about weakness. And I think that's bullshit, to be honest with you. You know, Sandy, I got to agree with you here. Um, when I look at this uh, this topic, one of the things that I see a lot of is uh, avoidance and uh, avoidance within the corporate world and with on teams and all these things. People just don't know what to do. They don't know what to say and they don't want to say the wrong thing. And uh, I'm a big, big, big believer in let's break the silence. So we got people out there suffering. We got people out there feeling alone. And I'll say again, as an, as an addict, feeling chronically alone, like yeah, I could be I could be with a thousand people and those people could all be, you know, hugging me for whatever reason. A thousand people could be in a giant group hug and somehow I will manage to feel all alone in that moment. So addicts are experts in self-destruction, like architect their own self-destruction in every moment, in every situation. Greatest moment in the world. You've got some kind of internal dialogue that's that's going uh, that's going negative. We got to break the silence. But in doing that, people listening to this, they could be like, yeah, like that's it. But then how do we do it? And yeah. not that you and I have the answer here, but if we're thinking like, let, I, I want to approach this in two ways. I want to approach it first from what advice would we give? And again, this is like, we're not HR professionals. We're not legal professionals, but we're both leaders and we're both uh, recovering addicts. So what advice can we give about, hey, how can we approach this as a culture? And this isn't business strategy. This is a our suggestions for a cultural approach from a workplace that can honor all sorts of people and where there can be a place for all sorts of people living with addiction, not living addiction, living with mental health concerns, not living with mental health concerns. How can we start approaching this in a way that's open, that lets people be vulnerable and that works? So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love this and I'm very passionate about this because I've seen it change people's lives and uh, I look in the mirror and I uh, see how it's changed my life. And I think through education around mm-hmm. addiction is so misunderstood. I spoke earlier about how my father uh, was an addict, committed suicide, et cetera, and I was never going to be like him and I was exactly like him, right? Mm-hmm. I just chose recovery. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what I didn't know, even though I was an addict, right, an alcoholic. Um, so education, education, education. 
and it's not hard to go to the mainstream and the mainstream of society, right, whether it's corporate America or just the mainstream of society, Canada, United States, wherever, and just educate on addictions. What are the signs of addictions, right? Mm-hmm. And you could really talk at the street level, if you will, and um, um, open people's minds and hearts to exactly what's going on uh, with addicts. And, oh, by the way, did they deserve special treatment? Absolutely not. Did they deserve treatment just like anybody else? Like I think about cancer uh, victims, uh, breast cancer victims, the pink uh, ribbon thing. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful thing that's been. I mean, that's been absolutely beautiful. So you said a little phrase earlier, break the silence. Maybe that's what it should be called. Whatever it should be called, let's educate, mm-hmm. right? Just like on cancer awareness with the little pink um, ribbons and things like that. I absolutely love that and support that 100%. Why do we not do that with addiction? and mental health advocacy, and just a little bit of thought, and there's a little, 90% of the world's a heck of a lot smarter than me, it can be done. And oh, by the way, if you get on the front end of uh, the mental health challenge, you know this a lot better than I do with therapists, then the the physical and the the family situation, so many things change for the positive. But, um, um, you know, this this is a great platform uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think about, and at um, like big corporate meetings around, I'm just thinking out loud here, uh, we would always have motivational speakers come in, and they were great speakers. And then we would have um, the legal team or the HR team deliver, um, you know, something that they were subject matter experts on that we needed to know. Why wouldn't we spend 30 minutes at, uh, and I'm talking to Fortune 500 America here, is why wouldn't we spend 30 minutes bringing in an addiction, uh, somebody to tell their story, right? And there's a number of folks that are open about their addiction. Why don't they get on the stage and tell their story, and then maybe that opens people up? Then I think the other thing you've got, and I think about human resource, again, in, in corporate America, God bless those folks. Why do they not get educated on um, addiction, right? They're generalist in their field, and they're great. Most human resources folks are. But why don't they become more educated in addiction, how to spot it in the workplace, how to, um, you know, spread it out amongst uh, leadership, what to look for um, in addicts? Yeah. And I, I love, I love all those things. So something that I've been noticing, we've been seeing a bigger push around mental health, which I, I love. Like, I love that we're this is starting to be a wall that's starting to be broken down. We're saying, hey, and, and refer to what you said earlier, it's okay to not be okay. Let's talk about it. The interesting thing, I've been noticing a, a lot of like addiction stuff has been just kind of gently folded into that. My belief is both need to be talked about, and we can talk about them in a conjoining way, but they are really like, they should be specific disciplines that we talk about. And the reason I say that is if we take addiction, we just kind of shuffle it into mental health. We're talking about a lot of stuff in a broad way. Instead, I'd like to talk about specific stuff in a deep way. Mental health concerns and addiction are often connected, but not always. And even in that space, how we work with both of them and how those can impact um, not just our personal lives, but our professional lives can be different. I am a firm believer that we start speaking about these things specifically because I do believe in uh, in regards to addiction it's a topic that's underserviced and I think it's a I believe it's a population within um, the corporate world that is underserviced around how we approach it so let's talk about that taboo and you mentioned earlier like the the fear of demonstrating weakness and I'll just say my day-to-day I'm lucky enough to work with professionals who can be honest with me and they can show that vulnerability but one of the first things that I almost hear from people, like almost always, is you're not going to say any of this stuff to anyone. I don't want anyone to know that I think this or I feel this or that this is my story. And, of course, everything that I would talk about with anyone would be confidential. But something that's always struck me is our addiction in our society 
to preying on the weaknesses of others or the perceived mm. weaknesses. And if mm. someone shows weakness, how we get that person. And that's not a, that's not a, something that people are imagining. That's a thing. So no wonder people are afraid to talk about being bullied or people are afraid to talk about their mental health concerns or their issues with their marriage. No wonder people are afraid to talk about their addiction. And of course, there's a time and place to talk about all of these things. You don't have to talk about it all the time. But we should be able to talk about these things without having those things weaponized against us. So what are your thoughts on that? How can we do that? Yeah, you said a lot, Ram. A whole lot. You know, again, I'm going to go back to the vulnerability piece that we spoke of earlier. It's okay not to be okay. And um, again, I really believe through education, and I don't mean just ex- education in a, uh, a formalized sense, but education in a uh, a person-to-person sense mm-hmm. that um, show the numbers, but then show the stories behind the numbers. And we always want to go the negative. Let's show the positive, right? You and I are recovering addicts sitting here looking across from each other today. Hopefully somebody's going to be helped from this. I know I'm being helped mm-hmm. as a result of thinking about things maybe that I wouldn't have um, thought about. Is um, I think there's got to be um, continued education around and um, to where the workplace, and this is what I'm getting to with education, I keep repeating myself, but to where there's a vulnerability in the workplace to be able to raise my hand and say, hey, I'm not okay, right? And to your point earlier, right, about how addiction is kind of glumped into mental health, and to your point, sometimes, you know, addiction can be uh, directly correlated to uh, mental health challenges, sometimes it isn't. But I think you got to really separate it. And then when you really separate it, you're going to get a lot of teeth into that because you're going to get folks that will come forward because I truly believe the majority of um, addicts want to be helped. Mm. Okay. Now, the stats are against um, that. I think uh, uh, recovery, you know, somewhere about 30% stay uh, uh, sober, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to get off way into that. But what I am saying is is that I think that they're, uh, this could compel folks to come forward and know that they're not going to be um, attacked or walked on or whatever, and that it's actually strength. It's not weakness when you say you've got a problem. What's weakness is suppressing it and saying that you don't have a problem and trying to act like you're okay. And that's okay too. But that's, that's weakness. Um, what strength is is surrendering, and, to me anyway, is surrendering and saying, hey, I've got a problem. And not only do I have a problem, I need some help. Mm-hmm. And in the workplace, there are boundaries there. But I guarantee you we can create avenues to get folks to medical professionals, to support groups, whatever they need to do. And if the individual wants to help themselves, Ram, um, I think that um, we could be the brokers that could get them going along the right path without crossing over in the line and getting in their personal life. Yeah, and I love what you're saying there because just to be clear, we're not saying to anyone in the workplace like you have to become an addiction counselor. But what we should be experts in, in creating an environment where people can put their hand up and say, hey, I need some help. And then we have resources where we can actually direct them there and help them get into that space. We don't have to become their addiction counselors. We don't have to be the people that hold them uh, to their programs. We need to be the people that create an environment where people can put up their hands, can share openly, and we help people find their path. So we've, okay, we've talked about how we've been in the side of if we're corporate America or corporate Canada, because that's where we are. But <laughs> if we were in corporate North America, how would we do it? But let's go into the space of the attic. And I want us to be real specific right now, because there's someone listening to this podcast today. There's someone listening to it today that's struggling with addiction who's not sober, who looked up something online, looking for some kind of resource, and somehow they found you and me. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking to that person. And if you're that person, I want you to take a moment, because now we're speaking directly to you. 
if we're that person, what could we say to them about your person living with addiction in the workplace? And this is what we suggest for you on your path going forward. Yeah, you know, great question, Aram. And um, first of all, alcoholism in the, again, I'm very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, is um, we talk about how alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I spoke earlier about how I just got a glimpse of honesty with myself back in October of 2007. And um, if you're listening to this and you're, you think you've got an issue, um, I think if you'll really get honest with yourself, that will lead you to take action. Getting honest with yourself and saying, hey, I'm going to do something about it and then not doing anything about it. It's going and talking to a mental health professional. I went and talked to my medical doctor, went and talked to uh, uh, psychologists, and uh, even a couple of friends, and, uh, you know, it validated um, my thinking. And I quit running for myself. So I, I hope and pray if you're out there um, that you don't let your fear or your embarrassment or um, your low self-esteem, whatever. Um, and again, by the way, uh, when that popped up, that's when I'd stick my chest out that much more and act like I'm okay, I'm strong, I can get through this. Well, guess what? You can't. Um, Please seek help, and there's plenty of help out there. Again, your medical doctor, a psychologist, but you got to get honest with yourself is what I'm saying. And if you're going to get honest with yourself and you truly want to just see if there is a better life, and I'm not evangelizing it, you know, to each their own, but um, seek help. It'd be just like, what if you had a broken arm? What are you going to do, sit on your ass in your house and just hope it heals up? No, you're going to go to the emergency room and get help, right? And you're going to be surprised at how many people will rally around you that love you and oh, by the way, guess what? You've got a great life ahead of you, but you've got to take that initial step. And again, I'm not trying to evangelize here, but if you really want better, and if there's any question in your mind, seek out professional help and don't wait. Because I'm going to tell you, if you do wait, from my perspective, is that that waiting could be another 10 years of misery, and God only knows uh, what's going to happen to you. And that torment on the inside of you is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and your go-to is going to be whatever your go-to is, whether it's alcohol, sex, drugs, gambling, et cetera. Okay. Uh, and I, I believe you, man. I'm, I'm with you. So now we're at the, the, por- the person who's like, I'm worried. I'm planning on getting sober. I'm planning on changing my life. How am I going to stay in the workplace and do this? And this is something you've done, and this is something I've done. We both got sober while we were working professional careers. So tell me from your perspective, if you were to say to someone today who's got an active addiction, and they're planning on getting sober, how do they stay in the professional world? Yeah, well, nothing changes. And when I say nothing changes, your personal life is your personal life. And what you do outside of the workplace um, is your business. Um, you can keep your, you know, folks are going to notice a difference in you, but you don't need to go in with a, a billboard. This is my opinion, a billboard or a megaphone saying, hey, I'm going to get sober, um, whatever the case may be. Folks will see that in the change in your behavior. And uh, again, it will take time uh, for you to notice it. Folks will notice it before you will, has been my experience. But um, you, don't, you don't have to uh, tell anybody what's going on with you personally until you feel comfortable with it. And oh, by the way, I'm with a lot of folks in recovery that uh, their anonymity about their alcoholism and addiction, um, nobody knows about it in the workplace. So it doesn't have to be brought into the workplace. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about the people who are like, well, if I stop drinking or if I stop doing this or I stop doing that, I'll become a different person. You know, people, I won't be fun. I won't be able to connect to people. I won't be, you know, I won't be the person that people like. What will I do? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Ram. I remember I was nine months into sobriety up in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or I should say down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and I was thinking, oh, my God, my personality is going to change. And, you know, I kind of like my personality, right? It's worked for me. Um, but uh, the great news is this, is that the counterfeit is the, the active alcoholic or the active um, addict. You're just going to become a better version of yourself, and you're going to really come to a place in your life. It takes time, takes a lot of work, but you're going to come to a place of uh, more serenity and contentment that you've ever had because it becomes the true you, not the false you. The false you, or I'll speak for myself, the false me, the counterfeit me, uh, was that person that was an active um, addiction. So, Sandy, I, I want to provide our audience with some real specifics that they can look at if they're considering getting sober or helping someone uh, get sober. So we've got outpatient counseling. So this is where you'd go work with someone who's a specialist in addiction, and you do it outpatient. So you stay at home, and you can still keep working. You're in the neighborhood. Um and then in addition to outpatient, you can have uh, programs such as day talks, which is you go work a program in the day and then you still like, you know, you've got, you can go home at night. So these are ways that you can be in the work world still and do some good recovery work. And of course, within that, there's good 12 step groups. And, uh, you know, I've done some work in 12 step and uh, Sandy, you've done some work in 12 step as well. But there's also inpatient. So inpatient would be where you're going to a program and programs can be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. They can be six months. And there's a lot of great programs that many companies have that give people the time off that they need to attend these programs. So there's lots of options. And the further we get along, there's more and more creative. You can do phone counseling. You can do Skype counseling. But the most important thing is knowing that you don't need to do it on your own. Hmm. My experience with addiction is everything was uh, shame, hiding, trying to give the world this perfect image of who I am. And, you know, one of the things I struggle with is because the nature of my job is quite public, I have struggled as someone living with addiction around positioning myself with people that I always want to have this impenetrable face of having my stuff together. And that's worked very well for me professionally, but it's worked terribly for me personally because that means when I'm struggling, zero people have an idea that I'm struggling. And then when I tell them I'm struggling, they're like, oh, oh. Whoa. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, there's a big black hole here. Like, holy mackerel. So knowing you don't need to do things alone and acting on that knowledge, that's how we deal with addiction. So we've played a lot with some of these ideas of how someone gets sober, but we haven't knocked into a really important one, which is relapse. Mm. So I've never experienced relapse with alcohol, which was my, with my, um, drug of choice. How about you? I have in a RAM. I've been around a lot of folks in my uh, 12-step group, again, Alcoholics Anonymous, that have uh, relapsed. And um, um, a lot of folks believe that that's part of recovery. And I, I tend to believe that as long as the individual gets back in the program. Mm. Um, to me, the danger in relapse is um, our addictive minds mm. fooling us and saying, well, that doesn't work, mm. right? That'd be like trying to go up and, I don't know, um, hit a baseball and all of a sudden the first time you swing, you miss, and you say, well, that doesn't work. I'm not any good at that. So I think relapse can be part of recovery um, as long as that doesn't become an out to go back into active um, addiction. Yeah, it's a fine line. It's a real interesting one uh, around relapse. Uh, I'm a believer. You know, People relapse, and that's just a part of the process. And interestingly, I said that I haven't relapsed on on drinking, but a term that we'll, we're going to do a lightning round later on, and I'm going to use it. I'll talk about a term there being a dry drunk. 
while I, I've never relapsed on drinking, I've certainly had behaviors that are associated with drinking ebb and flow. And if I'm really healthy and I'm really working a program or I'm around a lot of sober people or I'm really focused on health, those behaviors are low. But other times, they'll start creeping up. And it's an interesting thing because you don't have to look at relapse simply as doing your drug of choice, but even relapsing on some behaviors that are associated around addiction. But the flip side is if we focus too much on the relapse as a part of addiction, we could be like, well, you know, I got my one out. I got my, my, my ticket here that I can use like one, two, three or four times, right? <laughs> right. So I'd, I'd say for what I'm hearing from you and you can add in uh, if, uh, if you think I don't cover it here. Yeah, relapse can be a part of it and it often is, but it doesn't have to be. And so the takeaway here is don't plan to relapse and say, okay, once I relapse, that's when the real work starts. Do the real work. And if you do relapse, instantly get back on your feet, go to a meeting, get back into your program, start working hard. And that's how it's a, it's a bump. That's a learning moment and a growing moment rather than a path that takes you away from health. Anything you'd add to that? Couldn't say it better around. All right. I'm going to throw out a couple terms here that you you and I have done. And so this is going to be our almost like our lightning round where you and I can talk about our own experiences with this. Because, again, if you are someone living uh, with addiction, whatever that addiction is, I'm going to throw out some terms here that Sandy and I either both jointly or individually or not at all, we've we've struggled with. So, um, Sandy, tell me about how you've related to having that hole inside, that hole that just can't be filled. Oh, geez, I've related to it. You know, I feel um, <laughs> I finally figured out through a lot of help um, that I'm okay and that that hole uh, can be filled and uh, that that hole was really a false hole and it was uh, from something I was carrying forward in the, the past or whatever the case may be, but that that hole absolutely can be filled and um, I can live not just a life to survive and struggle day in and day out, but I can live a life um, – personally and professionally that I thrive. And oh, by the way, I have challenging days, but you know what? My worst day now is maybe a neutral day, right? It's not mm-hmm. a terrible day. Or there's this thing called self-compassion. When I'm having a bad day, I can be compassionate toward myself and those around me. So uh, that hole can be filled and you can live uh, just one hell of a life. Okay. Um, feeling less than. Oh, geez. Right? That was my go-to, <laughs> man. You're, you're hitting below the belt there, Ram. Um, you know what? We buy in, I'll speak for myself, I bought into a, a false belief in myself uh, at a young age for whatever reason, that doesn't matter. But what you learn um, as you get into recovery or what I've learned is I'm not, you know, I always had to be better than or less than. There was no in-between. What I've learned is what we're all equal and uh, I'm not superior or inferior to anybody. I'm okay just being Sandy Thompson. Okay. Resentment. Oh, geez, right? <laughs> That's the number one offender. Um it's it's funny how resentment works. So I can take um, anger against myself or frustration uh, against myself and deflect it towards others. And uh, resentment is an absolute waste of time. I can tell you um, just over the last year is that um, if I just had half the time back that I was anxious or fearful or full of resentment in my life, I'd probably live another 30 years uh, beyond what I was going to live. Resentment is a waste of time. Learn to forgive yourself and learn to forgive others. And we all suffer from this one thing. It's called the human condition and life's in full session. So don't waste your time with resentment. Forgive yourself, forgive others, and move on. And oh, by the way, you're not unique in whatever resentment you've got. We've all got them. Let them go. Move on and love people. All right. Dry drunk. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, uh, 
sometimes I felt like a dry drunk in uh, sobriety. And uh, that is uh, when you have the behaviors um, that you exhibited when you're in active alcoholism. And uh, to me, it's when I've gotten away from my uh, program. Mm-hmm. I'm very involved in the 12-step program. But uh, self-awareness uh, abounds when you work a solid program. Not a perfect program. It's progress, not perfection. Um, and uh, you can notice those times. And then you do a quick self-check. You don't beat the heck out of yourself. And you get back on the uh, the right path. And um, those dry drunk behaviors, those addictive behaviors become abnormal and they're not real you. And so you get away from them quickly. All right. And then we'll do we'll do our last one. And you already hit it. Uh, progress, not perfection. Oh, geez. That's anything in life, right? As, yeah, yeah. as addicts, alcoholics, we thought we had to be perfect because we never felt like we're good enough, or at least I did. Um, and, uh, it is progress, not perfection. And mm-hmm. what I've learned is my strengths are somebody else's weaknesses. My weaknesses are somebody else's, uh, strengths and, uh, it all meshes together. And, um, uh, you know, I don't have to, um, uh, I don't have to be perfect. And what a relief. Whew. What a relief for Ram. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're wrapping up here. Um, I want to ask you as we're heading towards our close, I'm interested in what message that you give to two different groups. The first is people in the workplace who aren't addicts, who don't live with addiction. What message would you give them about addiction and how they can help? Yeah, great question, Ram. And this is the way that I would frame it up is that think about the folks that you love most in your life. Take them out of being family members or significant others, whatever the case may be, and look at them as if they worked in your work environment with you and they were suffering with addiction. How would you treat that individual, right? And I think uh, with respect, with dignity, and and I'm sure most folks uh, would agree with me on this, is uh, you'll know if there's a chance and an opportunity when to step in and maybe tap that person on the shoulder and see if they need help. Not look at them in judgment, right? Not look at them like they're weaker than or a way to create um, some sort of workplace gossip or whatever. Not that anybody would do that, but um, go with your heart, mm-hmm. and then you'll know the right time if and when um, to inter- interject. And oh, by the way, you might be the catalyst um, that could uh, change your life for the positive outside of the workplace and obviously uh, within the workplace. Okay. So second message is for people right now, today, listening, living with addiction. There's a lot better way to live. And um, you can go to your grave running from yourself, but there's a lot better way to live. And I can tell you that if this alcoholic on this end of the microphone can get sober, from his addiction, um, anybody out there can get sober. And you just have to have the willingness to look yourself in the mirror and be honest with yourself. And when being honest with yourself, when you're truly being honest with yourself, that means you're willing to take action to take that step, whether that's a medical professional, a 12-step group, whatever group, right, church, whatever the case may be, um, then then um, you've got a lot, lot better life ahead of you, something that you can't even imagine. Right on. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, incredible to spend time with you. And this was a podcast that I've been waiting to do for a long time because I knew that you'd really be able to bring a lot of clarity to the subject and also a lot of humanity to it. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, what a privilege, Ram. Um, I, I just can't say enough. And, uh, you know, the great thing about addiction is like anything else in life. What are you going to do with adversity? Are you going to let it strengthen you or are you going to let it destroy you? And uh, just like you, Ram, and many addicts that are in recovery, we've allowed it to strengthen us. And hopefully this will be a blessing to other folks. I know it's been a blessing to me. And uh, I can't say enough, Ram, 
how much you've uh, impacted me in the five or six years that, that we've known each other, both uh, in my recovery and uh, in my profession. You've made me a much better man and a much better professional. So to you, I have a lot of gratitude. Ah, thank you, Sandy, and, uh, and to you as well. Uh, so everyone, we're wrapping up, and I want to leave you with a message. You know, the way I grew up and how I grew up, I remember just feeling this sense of like desperate loneliness all my life. And the way I treated it was with stuff, you know, buying stuff and relationships and anything that could fill up this hole. And of course, along with that came alcohol. And my addiction didn't start with me trying to live up to some like beer commercial lifestyle. My addiction came from a place of being terrified and terrified of life, terrified of the world terrified of failing, terrified of living. And when it really started to get to me, really started to break me down, and I had all the dark thoughts that go along with that, I didn't have some like magic moment where it was like, you know, the skies parted and someone spoke to me. I basically was looking in the gutter and said, hey man, it's this or you get it together. And I got it together and it was not easy and it doesn't mean it stays easy. In fact, you know, I've had a lot of ups and downs and I've had to work my way really hard. I've had to humble myself. I've had to learn tough lessons, but I learned them and I keep learning them. This isn't about having that moment there. You never look back. It's about having a lot of moments where you look back. And each time you look back, you learn something a little bit more about what's happened so that it doesn't happen again. So I encourage everybody listening to this, whether you live with addiction or you know someone who's uh, with addiction in your personal and professional life, there is a path forward. And that path forward is together through openness, through honesty, and of course, with courage. So I want to thank all of you for your time. Uh, again, this was a fantastic episode. And as we're wrapping up, as always, Dave, drop the beat. Wow, that was a really powerful conversation. And, you know, once again, thanks for Sandy for joining us. You know, addiction to the workplace is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I don't want to suggest to people that it's as easy as just starting a conversation to demonstrate caring and compassion for people living with addiction. But it's also not much harder than that. Sure, you want to think about what you say, you want to educate yourself, but it all does start with having the willingness to break the silence. If there's one thing I'd encourage anyone listening to this, whether you're living with addiction or someone who's never had any kind of a brush with addiction in their life, nothing is gained by sitting on the sidelines. Let's do everything we can to learn more, speak more, and connect more. And that's how we're going to make a real difference, not just with this concern, but for all of the things that marginalize people in the personal and professional world. Thanks very much, and I'll see you next time on One Step Beyond.